few subjects in investment arouse more interest or are more topical than that of fees. While fund fees have attracted a lot of attention, most recently in the industry regulator, the FCA's final report on the asset management business, the question of how professional firms which advise or manage money for private clients are rewarded has so far attracted rather less attention. How much are you paying to have your investments managed by someone else? It's often extremely difficult to find out, although the EU's MIFID regulations coming into force next year will require much more disclosure. Are you getting good value? Without knowing what the real costs are, it's a difficult question to answer, but the suspicion has long been that many investors are paying much more than they either need to or would want to if they actually knew the real costs. And in an ideal world, how should fee arrangements be structured? That's the question that I discuss in this podcast with Graham Harrison, Managing Director of Asset Risk Consultants, a consultancy and research firm that monitors the performance and fees of almost all the private client wealth management firms in the UK. This week, his firm came up with a formula that he thinks will enable investors whose money is managed by someone else to judge whether they're getting value for money or not, what he calls a fair fee structure. He also explains why he thinks cheap is not always the same as fair or best. Graham, you've come up with uh, what you think is a useful and sensible formula for how private clients should calculate how much they're paying their wealth managers and private client brokers, whoever they might be. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, I think that it's it's pretty topical because there's been an increasing focus on fees in the last couple of years. And I guess with particularly the interest that's been shown in uh, passive investment solutions and the fact that these are so much um, cheaper than active means that people are all the time saying, well, you know, how do I justify paying the extra money? to a discretionary fund manager. If I could go and buy a, a, a multi-asset class exchange traded fund for 25 basis points, why should I pay my discretionary fund manager 100 basis points? Uh, it's a good question. That's the question we've been trying to uh, grapple with. And what we've actually done is we've come up with a framework. We haven't come up with an answer so much as a framework that anybody can apply to thinking about what they're getting. And, you know, we published the the paper um, this week because the FCA Asset Management Market Study came out. Um, and this study was, 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 was pretty interesting, but it had some key findings. The first finding was that there's some evidence that if your fees are high, your performance is worse. That's quite logical in a way, but yes, yep. I'm not sure it's causational uh, directly in the sense that I don't think that everybody who pays higher fees um, got a worse performance. But uh, there's definitely some evidence that it, it, it is a condition that matters. So, so if you are paying a higher fee, um, you clearly need to have a better manager, have a manager that is going to be delivering you more alpha, if you like, and uh, if only to pay for that fee. So that relationship is something that really is at the core of what we were trying to investigate. Another thing that the FCA study highlighted was that investors should actually understand what the total cost of investing is. I think a lot of investors actually don't know the answer to that. Uh, MIFID 2 is around the corner uh, from beginning of next year. That'll be in force. And all investors are going to find out 
really what the cost of investing is. And again, part of the reason we've come up with the formula now is so that when people get the answer, they have a framework for considering whether that's too much or actually about right, or maybe even a bargain. It's something that we've seen happening in other jurisdictions across the globe. Um, I don't know if you know, in in Canada, uh, they started last year. uh, Every single manager has to write to their client at the end of the year and tell them what their performance was and tell them what the fees were that they were charged. So everybody who has a discretionary fund manager is getting these letters in Canada. I think pretty much MIFID 2 is going to bring a similar situation. So hopefully the formula will be helpful to people who want to assess the reasonableness or otherwise of their fees. Before we go on, just tell me then what um, what have they been finding in Canada? Just so is, is there any kind of sort of ballpark figures you could give us? And there's obviously a range. We know there'll be a big range. But before we go into how you're going to deal with that, what, what, is, what has been coming out of those letters? Currently, uh, most private clients have been either mystified or surprised at the quantum or both. Um, But there isn't anywhere that we've come across a framework for them thinking about whether the number is right or wrong. And in fact, it was it's partly because uh, we have clients in Canada who were asking us the question of, well, how do I work out whether this is good or bad Um, that, that we, you know, accelerated, if you like, work on this. Um, but th- there isn't a framework, I don't think, and it's still very opaque. And certainly it's not common practice for that information to be shared. So you probably remember about 10 years ago, a firm started collecting um, TER, total expense ratio data for funds. And this was kind of revolutionary at the time. People weren't collecting that. Now, of course, it's absolutely commonplace. And Everybody has to put uh, the costs of their product on their key information document. I think we're going to see the same thing happening in the private client world. Right now, it's revolutionary, the idea of saying your total expenses of of running this vehicle, of of running this portfolio are, are X. In 10 years' time, it will have become absolutely the norm. So what happens at the moment is you normally, when you go along and you sign up with somebody, they give you a like a kind of fee schedule and they say it's going to be 1%, but you don't actually see all the other bits and bobs that come out in the process until you actually get your statement at the end of the year. And even then, you can't always work out exactly what it is that you've paid. Uh, I mean, that's the current situation, I think, isn't it? So even though they have to tell you something at the beginning, it doesn't actually necessarily um, correlate to exactly the experience that you're then going to have as a private client. Yeah, that's exactly right, because um, a discretionary fund manager generally will quote what they call the AMC, the annual management charge. Um, That is the amount that they're going to charge for running your money. But if, for example, they were buying some pooled vehicles, some funds within your portfolio, those, of course, have fees attached to them as well. And when you're looking through and thinking about the total expenses of your portfolio, you've got to add up the cost that you're paying to your manager, the AMC, but also the costs of accessing the investments within your portfolio and probably some transaction costs, maybe separately some custody costs. Um, So it's far from the whole story when you look at that annual management charge. 
Okay, indeed. So, so here we are. We're trying to create this framework. So you say there's three uh, elements to it. Let's uh, let's take them in order. What's what's the first one? So the first thing is um, what we might call the administrative expenses, or another way we might think of it is the service. So what what we mean by that is that when you have a discretionary portfolio, um, there are going to be a series of things that the manager does for you that is going to basically take them time to do. So they're going to need to fill in a bunch of forms to meet regulatory and uh, you know, kind of know your client obligation suitability uh, requirements. Uh, and those are going to have to be reviewed on a periodic basis. They're going to need to provide you with statements and valuations on a periodic basis. Um, and those might be monthly, quarterly, semi-annual, or even annual, um, but there is a body of work that will need to be done there. Very probably, uh, as an investor, you're going to expect a tax pack. Uh, you're going to want them to give you the information so you can fill in your tax return accurately, or your accountant can fill in your tax return accurately. Um, chances are that you're going to want them to periodically provide you with money. Um, so your liquidity uh, management, uh, you might indeed be putting more money into that portfolio and that then needs to be managed. So there's receipts and payments that need to be uh, handled. And I guess the, the the last element of that service and the bit we might have jumped to immediately if we'd asked a private client, well, what do these people do for you is uh, meetings and correspondence. So we might want to receive a personalised letter uh, explaining what's going on in our portfolio. And we might want to meet with representatives of that firm on a periodic basis. All those things are service. They're all services that are being provided. They're not really ad valorem type expenses because actually it's the same amount of time whether you have a million pounds, 10 million or even 100 million invested with that manager but it is time and time has a cost attached to it. So these admin expenses, we think each client should consider what they're receiving in terms of those services. And then uh, that can be translated into a, an amount of money. We actually think it's probably in the range of £2,000 at the low end to maybe £10,000 or more. Um, that it costs an investment manager to run a discretionary portfolio in the way that we typically expect that to be done. So it's unbundling uh, those services, which are normally, if you like, hidden and wrapped up in the fee and saying, well, what am I getting? Okay, so just two things. First of all, perhaps you just, for some people, we should explain that ad valorem means you're charged a percentage of the amount of money you have with that person. So typically you said 1% before. So if you have £100,000 a year, 1% would be 1000 If it's a million, it would be 10000 and so on. So that's just clear at that point. But the second point is, does when you say you're working out the cost of those services, are you including a profit margin for the people who are providing those services? In other words, or is it just the cost of their time on some, some basis, presumably the basis that they charge out? At? If the uh, discretionary manager is making no money, then they're going to go out of business. So... Uh, clearly, the uh, the amount that they would be charging you would be a, a cost plus type model 
of course, it, you know, for, for, for many people, they say, well, how do I actually find out what that number is? You know, it could be any number. But I think I think if you think of yourself as being if you are the most demanding client you can think of, then you're sort of at the top end. You're in, in at 10,000, maybe more. And if you're the least demanding client, you can imagine you're probably around the £2,000 mark. And then it's somewhere in the middle. Um, that probably gives a sensible range. And then, to be honest, um, clients should ask their managers, how much do they think it costs to provide these sorts of uh, services and see what the manager says? We, we could easily translate this, though, into an amount per hour, couldn't we? So if, if we say that we're going to pay our managers, for sake of argument, £200 an hour, then 10 hours and we get up to £2,000. So it's fairly simple to, I think, just think of it in terms of what time am I demanding from my manager to service my account? Okay, so let's park that then for the moment. This is item number one. Uh, and so that is a figure which is a cash sum which can be calculated. So then what's item number two in your formulation? So item number two is how much would it cost to access the markets that you want to have exposure to in an entirely passive way. So sometimes this is referred to as beta. You know, it's market exposure. So if I wanted to have a portfolio that was 100% exposed to the FTSE all share, I could go and buy an exchange traded fund or an index tracking fund, pay an amount of money, and I would have exposure to that asset. Most private clients don't hold a single asset. They have a range of asset classes. But these days, it's possible to find index tracking funds or exchange traded funds that provide access to almost every single asset class we can think of. And so to work out the price of market access, it's essentially saying if I was to buy a passive portfolio that replicated the neutral invested position for my portfolio. Um, in some cases, that would be called a benchmark, of course. It's a composite of indices. How much would it cost me to do that? And there's, um, there's essentially three bits to the cost. The first cost is the actual just cost of the funds. And those tend to range between actually 10 basis points or even less. Um, up to sometimes quite expensive. Um, I mean, there are ETFs that are 50 basis points or more, but one can work out a blended rate of the cost of those funds. Then you've got to buy them and you need to rebalance them every now and then. And so there's really a transaction cost element and that is going to uh, need to be added in. And then the last element would be the custody because you need to, actually, it's not true that you need to, but most private clients would like to have their, their funds held on a custody platform, and that has a cost associated with it. So whether you, you were using a, a custodian like State Street or Northern Trust, uh, RBC Dexia, or you were using um, more of a, a platform, you know, Elevate, Novia, and so on, there's a cost of, of using those platforms. So that's essentially the cost of market access. It's the cost of running uh, a passive portfolio that uh, replicates an agreed benchmark or neutral asset allocation. So just to take a very simple example, if 
what we used to call in the old days a very classic, simple equity bond portfolio, 60% equities, 40% bonds, just as that just as a very, very, the simplest example, obviously it's a lot more complicated than that now. But what you would do is you'd say, if it was the UK, you'd go for a UK uh, equity market index fund, which would cost you 10 basis points, let's say, and you'd go for a bond ETF or equivalent, which would cost you probably something similar, maybe a little bit more. And then you've got to add on the the custody and this um, and the buying cost and the rebalancing. Rebalancing should explain is to make sure you end up at the end of the, or the start of each year with the the portfolio balance that you want. You've still got your sixty percent equity and forty percent bonds at the start of each period and so on. Um, so that's just a little bit of trading. So if we put those all together, what what sort of figures are you would you expect to find? Obviously, you're going to find out in practice what they are. But what would you expect to find? So the, so the cost of market access uh, is definitely affected by the quantum of assets that uh, you have available to deploy. If we took that typical 60-40 type portfolio and a portfolio, I don't know, of around 2 million, say, we would say probably that's going to be 40 basis points or 0.4% per annum in total. But it could vary quite widely. A, a pure equity strategy in the most liquid markets, US, UK, Europe, um, using a, an institutional custodian and institutional trading rates, you could probably get that market access for a mere probably 10 basis points all in. If you had a smaller amount of money and you were using a platform, then that cost of market access could certainly be uh, significantly greater than 40 basis points. And it just really depends on the, the particular platforms that have been chosen. And is that actually related to the complexity or the amount of diversification you have or the fact that if you've got a very big portfolio, if you are, a, you know, you're talking about millions, um, that you might actually have some specialist vehicles in there, that kind of thing. Is, is that likely to happen? Is that why it's more as you go up? I mean, what is what is the driving factor behind the extra cost? There? The cost of the market access is roughly the same regardless of the size of your portfolio. Obviously, if you start including more esoteric asset classes, they tend to be more expensive. But broadly speaking, the cost of market access, it doesn't matter whether you've got £100,000 or £100 million. It's really similar because you're buying the same funds, ETFs. What changes is the cost of trading and the cost of custody. Right. That all that all makes sense. So it is this particular portion, it is sensible to think of it in terms of an ad valorem percentage of our assets kind of cost. That makes sense. It's not like the administrative expenses, which are more of a of a fixed amount. That's right. That's a, that's absolutely right. So we got our first two elements, and now we've got the third element. And what is the third element? This is where what we would call a bit of skill comes into play. Is that right? Yes, absolutely right. If, if you wanted to have a discretionary portfolio that tracked an agreed benchmark or asset allocation, you don't need this next element. You would stop at admin expenses and market access, those first two elements, and, and that is the cost. The third cost is essentially um, investing in human capital that is provided by the manager, and that human capital is seeking to allow you to outperform the market. Now, this is, of course, commonly known as active management or alpha so we're going with a manager who says that because of our tactical asset allocation, because we're good at picking underlying funds, because we're excellent at stock selection, we are going to not match 
a neutral asset allocation, we're actually going to beat it over time. And to be able to do that, we need to inject this skill. And skill is essentially an investment by the investment manager in research. So what we're doing is we're, we're, we're paying for applied research. So then the question is, how much should we pay for it, of course? <laughs> and how much does it cost as well? That's another interesting question. Yeah. So if we think about a fund, a typical fund which is actively managed, investing in, for example, the UK equity market, that fund might charge us between 60 basis points to 100 basis points. Obviously, we can buy the exchange-traded fund tracking that, that market, probably for 10. So we're paying an extra 50 to 100 basis points in an attempt to get higher returns than the market. Actually, with a discretionary fund manager, you're adding another element, which is that they're changing the asset mix as well. So you're paying for two things. You're paying both for the ability to beat the index in a particular market, and you're paying for a judicious blend and moving that blend around. But the question is, how much should you pay for that? And, and there's really two ways of thinking about it. The first way is that I can look back and see whether or not my manager has outperformed. And in, an, in, a, in a perfect world, if my portfolio has not outperformed the passive alternative, I really shouldn't pay any research fee because I got nothing out of it. So it's essentially, in a sense, it's a performance fee that would be the perfect expression or the perfect share of the fruits of labour from that discretionary fund manager. So we might agree that when you outperform this passive strategy, that we'll share the outperformance, for example, 60-40. I'm going to keep 60% as the provider of capital and you're going to keep as the manager 40% as the provider of skill. That is very rare right now. And uh, of course, it only works looking backwards. But we could agree this, uh, what we call value capture ratio, which in this case that we talked about was 60-40. And if you think about the way that hedge funds tend to charge, when they say they're going to take 25% of the outperformance, for example, as a performance fee, they're essentially saying that you have 75% of the value we generate, we'll have 25% of the value that we generate. Now, the problem with them is that they've already charged you a very large amount up front, and really that is way too high. But the concept of performance fee is, is closer aligned to sharing skill. What actually happens in, in practice is that when we go with a discretionary manager, we don't know if they're going to outperform or not. Um, and so working out the amount we should pay for this research becomes more looking forward to, well, what might I expect to happen rather than looking back? It's a knotty problem. And it's one that we've approached by taking the following steps. The first step is that if you are a good manager, the only way that you're going to add value is to take some bets away from the passive portfolio. So you need to have some, what we call in the industry, tracking error. But 
more practically is I need to construct my portfolio differently to the market. Because if I've constructed my portfolio to copy the market, I'll clearly perform in line with the market. The further I move away from copying the market, the more possibilities I have to outperform or indeed underperform. And that possibility can be measured by this statistic called tracking error. Academic research has shown that there is a relationship between the bet sizes and the alpha, the amount of outperformance that is generated. And so we can actually say that if there's a connection between outperformance potential and tracking error, and we can agree a proportion of sharing of that alpha, then we can use tracking error to determine how much we should pay for the research. It's a slightly complicated way of looking at it, but essentially, to give a practical example, if we think about a fund that is investing in the UK equity market and it holds all 100 shares in the FTSE 100 in the same proportions as the index, there's no tracking error there. That is just copying. Supposing we now have a portfolio that's only invested in 40 stocks, then clearly we've taken some bets. And if we reduce that number down to 20 stocks, we've taken even more bets. And so what we do is we look at the extent of the bets being taken by the manager. And we think that the amount that we reward them for research should be directly connected to the degree of out or under performance potential that we've got by the way they've constructed that portfolio. And this is exactly in line, in fact, with some comments the FCA have made, which uh, have essentially said that many, many funds are charging active fees for passive management. So what we're saying is the fee should be dependent on the degree of activity being shown. Okay, that is very logical. So in other words, the the more you deviate from the from the passive benchmark, the higher the potential outperformance and, as you say, underperformance you can have, and that's what you should be splitting. That conceptually makes sense. We'll come on in a moment to whether any of this is practical at all in terms of how it's going to be received by the industry. But let's just stick with this. Okay, so we've got we've now got our three elements, have we? Is that the whole of the third element that we just talked about? The performance yep. fee element? Yeah. Okay. So, so the fair fee that you pay your manager is the combination of the... Uh, the cost of providing the service, which is uh, an amount that you can have in pounds, plus the cost of accessing the market, which will be a, an ad valorem, you know, a percentage of the assets that you've placed with the manager. That's to create the passive portfolio, plus an amount that pays for the manager's research efforts. And I, I won't get into the technical stuff about how you do it. If you've got a, um, a private client manager who is investing has invested in 25 funds for you how do you work out what the tracking error is for that whole lot because presumably you have to do it across the whole field don't you or do you just look at the outcome of the whole thing we look at the outcome of the whole thing so so that's a really interesting example because many many portfolios that are run by discretionary fund managers are actually portfolios where the majority or if not all of the money is invested with underlying funds the manager has a responsibility, of course, for you to negotiate down the price of access to those funds. But you need to know what the cost of all those funds are. And it's the cost of all those funds plus the 
amount that the manager is charging you for their research that you need to investigate. So what you could find there is that the manager actually almost can't really justify any money for themselves because the cost of the funds is so high. So if you buy a, a load of funds that in effect, they're all actively managed, but they essentially end up replicating the market, they cancel each other out and, and you end up really, you might as well have bought the tracker or the manager might as well have bought the tracker and they because they haven't left themselves any scope to charge an active fee. So again, before we come on to this question of practicality, let's just look at, you, you, you give a worked example in your uh, press release and it's quite an interesting one, I think. So let's just take the three elements for, we've got somebody who's, we're talking about, what, a two million pound portfolio here? Yeah. So just tell us very quickly what the three elements are. In, you can do it either in cash or percentage terms and, and what figure you come up with as, a, as an illustration of a portfolio you might look at and the conclusion you might draw from, from those numbers. Okay, so, so in our example, we assumed that uh, the private client would like to receive quarterly valuations, maybe meet the manager twice a year, they want the tax pack, and they want to receive payments from that discretionary manager on a sporadic basis, you know, on an as-needed basis, maybe two or three times a year. And we've estimated that the cost of administration for that for that portfolio is, let's say, £4,000. Now, for a £2 million portfolio, that's 20 basis points. That's 0.2%. So that's the cost of the admin expenses. Then we said, well, what's the cost of market access if we assume that we're looking for a portfolio that is 60% equities and 40% UK bonds? And we went and looked at the price of the exchange traded funds that we could buy. And that blended cost was around 20 basis points. We assumed custody would be about 10. And then the cost of rebalancing the trading cost each year was about another 10. So that came to 40 basis points. So that's £8,000. So to have a passive portfolio, but meeting the manager and having them look after your investment affairs would cost you about £12,000 or 06 we then looked at what the fair fee would be for the research. And we've assumed in this case that the uh, tracking error is 4% per annum. This is something that we would have had to calculate based on the way that the manager uh, behaves, the way that they construct the portfolio. And based on a tracking error of 4%, uh, we have assumed that that will generate a possibility of us outperforming the market by up to 2% a year. And then we've assumed that we're willing to share 50-50. And so that means that we would pay 1% for the research and we would get 1% of outperformance for ourselves. So on that basis, we're saying 1% is the fair amount to pay the manager for their skill. And we're going to share the fruits of that skill 50-50. Now, of course, for each client, they might not want 50-50. They might say that, actually, I wanted 75% to the upside. Well, in that case, they're only willing to pay 50 basis points. So these things, um, the client needs to be comfortable. The manager needs to be comfortable that it's a sensible allocation. But that 1% would be £20,000. So you would pay 32000 in all or 1.6%. So depending on what your actual cost was, 
uh, you'd be able to compare your actual cost to that 32,000 or 1.6% and decide whether or not the manager seemed to be charging you too much uh, about right or indeed, you know, it's a bargain. But just on that final element of putting it all together, the skill of the manager in your example, he's made you £20,000, but he's cost you £20,000. Correct. So he's justified himself, but um, the two cancel out if it's a 50-50. By definition, the two cancel each other out. The gain to the portfolio and the cost to you, the cost to your pay. Oh, no, no, no. So, the, so you've gained 40000 overall, and you've shared it 20000 each. So if the market was up um, 10% in this example, the fact that you've, you're in the market means that you're up uh, £200,000 because you had £2 million to start with. So the 2 million became 2.2 million. And then you were trying to do better than that. And in this particular example, you have done gross 12% and net 11%. If you hadn't paid for the skill, you'd have done 10. So you're still, you are actually genuinely ahead. So you're ahead, yeah. Your manager's earned his corn. This year, anyway, he's earned his corn. That's if they've delivered, of course, the 2%. Of course. I mean, some people have asked us, you know, surely if they don't deliver me anything, I shouldn't pay them. And effectively, the way that's going to work out is that if the manager consistently underperforms the market access portfolio, you should sack them because they're not adding any value with all that research. So in a sense, um, you know, that is where the, uh, the investor has to say, well, I thought I was going to have this outcome where I was going to outperform. Am I getting it? And if you're not getting it, then you need to say to yourself, well, why am I with this active manager when I could have had a passive result or indeed gone with an active manager who did outperform? So this is, in a way, it's quite a revolutionary concept in a way for the way the industry is run at the moment in the sense that you're saying to people, you've got to do some work as well. You've got to work out what you actually are prepared to pay these people. And the amount of information you get from them at the end of the year um, for many people, they're not really able to judge whether they've done a good job or not. All they know is they've had a couple of meetings and the thing's been very pleasant and they've had a cup of tea maybe or maybe even go to lunch sometimes. Um, but they, what they really need to do is they really need to, as with most other services, they need to sit down and try and work out whether it's really worth what they're paying for. Absolutely. And, you know, it's much like there's been a general tendency. We, we, we were asked the question, will DFMs be very anti this schema? And um, we actually believe that they will be pro this schema because what, what has happened is that over time, the regulator has come in and said low fees are better. Cheap is better. But actually, we don't think that fair is the same as cheap. Cheap is cheap. And if you go out to buy a car and you buy a cheap car, you expect it to be cheap. <laughs> You do not expect to get a Mercedes quality in your cheap car. If you want that, you need to pay more. If you want to have um, an outcome that gives you the chance to enhance your wealth over and above what you'd have got with a passive strategy, you need to actually pay for quality input. You need to pay for that skill. And this is a way of uh, managers actually justifying higher fees than would otherwise be justifiable. And we see in, for example, stakeholder pensions, where there is a fee cap. 
And that fee cap is saying, for example, I think it says says it's 60 or 65 basis points that has to be the maximum cost. But what that's done is it's forced providers to put a lot of exchange traded funds and index trackers into the portfolio. That has reduced the ability of the managers to outperform. And so you've actually got a lower quality product. So cheap is not necessarily better. What we need to think of it is the more intellectual input you get, uh, the more chance you've got it out about performing, but you need to pay for that skill. You can't have that skill for nothing. So as in so many things, in an ideal world, you would pay for what you get, or rather you get what you pay for. Um, that's in an ideal world. But of course, the world isn't very ideal at the moment in the sense there is this lack of transparency. I think it's, many people would agree. It's not, it's not easy to find out the information. And that's what you're hoping with MIFID and all the rest of it, that will finally allow people to be, have a little more insight into what the costs are and to then to make those judgments with more evidence than they, than they have at the moment. Is, is that a fair summary? Yeah, and the amazing thing about MIFID 2 is that uh, all investors are going to find out what the total cost of their investment is. Now, there have been some debates about will it be the actual total cost or will it be close to the total cost? It's going to be better than it's ever been before. People are going to get a number and they're going to see that number. And in many cases, they're going to have a shock because they're not going to have realised how much is being taken out of their portfolio if you like, by the people who are running it, both directly and subcontracted through funds. And this is a way of them being able to contemplate whether that actually is providing value for money or it is actually essentially they're paying for research that you could argue isn't actually happening. So when this comes in, and assuming, let's say for the sake of argument, that there's a widespread take-up of your approach to this, this is going to lead to some change and maybe some consolidation in the industry, but also how would you measure success? Will it be that actually you'll see the dispersion of fees getting bigger or do you think you'll find it all converging around the same level? What would you what would you hope or what would you expect to see? I, I'm hopeful that the quality of service will go up for the same fee. That would be the best possible outcome. And then allied to that, that, that people will understand that cheap is not better i.e. this relentless drive towards more and more exchange-traded funds and index trackers in portfolios will end. Because I don't think, under, under our approach, when a manager says to us or says to, uh, says to an investor, I've reduced your expenses by buying more trackers, the client will not go, oh, good. The client will actually go, why? Because what has happened is that skill potential for outperformance has been removed from the portfolio. And the driving factor has just been to get a cost number down. To me, that makes no sense. What we need to do is to understand, am I getting value for money? The free riders, the, the managers who are pretending to do research but aren't, are going to be found out. I suspect there aren't that many of those around, actually. What will hopefully happen is that people will be prepared to pay a fair fee for a quality service. And actually, because of that, the dispersion of fees will remain fairly significant. The people who are doing good research will gain assets under management and they will be able to be profitable doing that. 
The people who were free riding and essentially not doing that research and certainly not delivering any outperformance, they will see assets under management fall. And so hopefully that will give a better outcome to investors. Well, I think we all would obviously want that to be the case. Just on one point, though, is there a conflict here between, because essentially you're wanting your the managers who are charging high fees, you want them to take obviously more active management, if you like, bigger tracking errors and so on. Isn't that go, going to run up against this other problem that, that a lot of wealth managers, private client firms have, which is struggling to meet the suitability requirements of the FCA? In other words, getting people to understand that in order to get our performance, they've actually got to um, take what on conventional, uh, on some conventional analysis is actually more risk. How do you think they'll deal with that? This is a huge topic. Suitability should be helping clients get better outcomes. I suspect that in an attempt to to provide a rules-based suitability framework, there are suboptimal outcomes happening. And those are essentially that um, the desire to minimize the risk of a portfolio behaving unusually, let's say, is preventing managers from actually taking the bets away from the market that they feel they ought to do. I hope that managers will find ways around that and that investors will understand that deviation of returns from the market is not in itself a bad thing. It's the only way to get a better result, effectively. It's the only way to get a better result. We hope you've enjoyed this Moneymakers podcast. Our podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on a variety of podcast channels, including SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube, and as from this week, also Share Radio's platform. The podcasts are free, and if you want to find out more or listen to some of the earlier interviews in this series, please go to our website, www.money-makers.co, or follow us in future on any of the channels just mentioned. Thank you for listening.